0: Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Hi there, this is Brian Collins, and welcome to this edition of the Become a Writer Today podcast. I'm recording this episode in early August, and I'm actually just back from a two week holiday with my wife and three children. We spent the holiday in Kos in Greece, and my three children are 13 nine and 11 months and traveling with three children one of whom is just a baby certainly presents its challenges but it was definitely a relaxing holiday and I got in that I got some time to switch off and I often find when I take breaks like this it gives me time to reflect on some of the creative projects that I'm spending time on and maybe some of the projects that I'd like to start next and I also got a little bit of time to think about what I want to focus on for the rest of the year. And since I got back from the holiday, some things I've been working on are improvements to a course I've created about writer's block, which you may already have heard about. So I've been updating some of the modules inside of that course. And I've also been reconsidering some of the articles on my site. Uh, so I'm putting together an, an article that will help you find a job as a writer and start to earn more money. And I'm also putting together another article that will help you learn how to get paid because many writers often email me and they say that, you know, they don't have a lot of money and how can they make? an income from this craft. And the truth is, it is possible if you know where to look, if you refine your skill set, and if you figure out who your ideal audience is. So in both of these articles, which I'll publish later on in the year, I'm going to explain the type of skills that you need to get paid as a writer and to build your authority online. And I'm also going to explain where you should look if you want to find clients or people you want to work for as a writer. Other activities that I've been working on include considering how I approach email marketing. And if you take blogging or your writing career seriously, email marketing is something that you really should tackle and get a grip on. So basically, when you join my email list, I'll send you a series of welcome emails that explain what you can expect from become a writer today. And I've been going back and looking at those emails and seeing, am I getting the right kind of advice in front of the right kinds of people? But of course, learning a skill like email marketing or even how to get paid to write can take time. So what should you do if you don't have a lot of time to learn all these skills? Well, Canadian man Scott Young certainly put me to shame. He learned the entire MIT computer science curriculum in just one year. And that curriculum is supposed to take four years. He called this his MIT challenge. He traveled around the world for 12 months with a friend without speaking English and taught himself to speak multiple languages including Korean and Mandarin while he was away. And he's also learned difficult creative skills like how to draw portraits. Scott also just published a new book called Ultra learning, master hard skills, outsmart the competition, and accelerate your career. And I've read the book and it offers nine principles which can help you learn any new skill that bit faster. He's actually condensed everything he's learned about ultra learning into the principles which he reveals inside of this book and which we cover in this interview. He also reveals why he decided to write a book about ultra learning in the first place, how he approaches writing, research, and self editing, what new writers and authors should do if they want to acquire skills like copywriting, the essential role of critical feedback, and what is writing an ideal early morning routine looks like. We get into lots more in the interview, but I started by asking Scott, why did you decide
1: to write this book in the first place? So the book Ultra Learning, this has really been the book that I've been kind of wanting to write for the last decade, pretty much. So I started thinking about writing this book pretty much when I was doing the MIT Challenge, which was back in 2011. Uh, <laughs> and when I had started that project, I had been thinking already that, oh, I might like this might be something I could maybe write a book about. And I sort of finished the project. And part of it was just I was like, okay, I've just finished doing this project. I don't really feel like also writing a book about the project immediately after. And then also, I think it just, to me, it wasn't developed enough as an idea then. And so I kind of put it on hold. And then it took a couple more years, more projects, working on more things, getting introduced to other people who did this kind of ultra learning to really sort of see what the actual idea was or the picture was. And so, I knew I wanted to write a book about learning. Learning has been a topic that has just been the obsession of my life for like the last decade. So I knew I wanted to write about that topic, but it was hard to find an angle that I thought I really believed in. And I also thought was compelling because I felt like I'm not a PhD. I'm not like some, you know, Harvard researcher in cognitive science. So, I felt like it was a little bit of a stretch to do a quote unquote science of learning book where, you know, the pitch is I'm going to summarize all the science we know about learning. I felt like, well, I'm not really in the best position to do that kind of book. And I also felt like a book that was just totally self indulgent and just going to talk about my own experiences writing a book would also not be that interesting. So, it took a while to kind of find this. Perspective which was which ended up being the idea of ultra learning as a kind of distinct strategy for learning hard things, and then taking a bunch of other people's stories, mixing them with my own, mixing them with some science and uh, research and try to come up with something actionable for people, but also something new that i don't I didn't see a book out there on learning that had talked about it in this way because most books on learning, of course talk about how do you how do you study and get good grades and and there aren't that many on. You know, how do you teach yourself hard skills that matter for you even when, you know, just passing a test isn't your goal?
0: Yeah. I mean the the book that it reminds me a little bit of was the four hour chef, but
1: I suppose that's a slightly different topic, which is different. Yeah. Well there there definitely have been books that have been similar. I think Four Hour Chef is kind of an unusual book because like the title doesn't make it seem like it's about learning at all. So I'm not quite sure what was the initial intention for that because it's sort of ostensibly about cooking, <laughs> but really sort of deeply about learning. Whereas I think my book is quite explicitly about, about the practice of learning.
0: And you've like mastered a number of skills before you wrote the book, everything from the MIT course that you talk about in chapter one to when you spent a year traveling and didn't speak any English. So which of those skills has made the biggest impact, uh, I suppose, on your
1: life? Yeah. So... Biggest impact on my life. I think the one that sticks with me more is the language learning project rather than the MIT challenge. Not to say the MIT challenge, I think that had a profound influence on me. So I don't want to discredit it. But I think for me, the the skills that I use more to this day, I, I think I use the languages a bit more. However, the MIT stuff is, is, it's kind of hard to talk about. They all have their own sort of unique place. The MIT challenge as well, I think is interesting because I think that for a lot of people, the way that they would be viewing that project from the outside is, well, this was a project to get really good at programming. And although computer science is related to programming, if you look at what I was actually studying in those courses and doing on a sort of daily basis, if you wanted to just, if your only goal was I want to become a really good programmer, that probably wouldn't have been the way to do it. That it was much more math and theory and stuff. And so the, a lot of the sort of takeaways, the things that I think now, oh, I remember learning that and that are probably not the things people would have expected. Um, because I did do programming, but I also learned a bunch of physics and I took biology classes and chemistry classes. And I did like a whole economics major in there. So a lot of the stuff I learned about economics, I learned in that period of time as well. And those were sort of part of the MIT philosophy was to you know, get their undergrads. They wanted everyone who, regardless of their major, to have a firm grounding in sciences and those topics. And so I felt like I got that kind of I got those sort of benefits of that education, perhaps even more so than, you know, just being able to do a lot of programming.
0: One other thing I was struck by is you you've been writing and sharing your work online since I think the mid two thousands, if 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 I read your slide correctly. So you're you're yeah. not somebody who subscribes to the idea that people are good at one or two Key domains that they can you can actually, you know, master an MIT course and you can also write a book and you can also teach through courses, which I think you offer as well. But you would agree it's
1: possible for somebody to master different skill sets, well, even if they're a writer, for example. Yeah, it depends on what you mean by master, right? I think some people use the term master to refer to a kind of elite level of achievement, meaning that you have reached, you know, top performance in the world. And if we're talking about it like that, again, it does depend a little bit on the domain. Domain that we're considering, but I would say that it's unlikely that someone would truly master more than one domain. Just because very few people master even one domain, right? Like the vast majority of us are not masters at anything. That we're okay at some things, and that's it. If we're talking about it in terms of like you know producing cutting-edge research or being an elite performer in some field, then it requires a certain focus. Just because. You know, the time involved means that most people never master anything. Now, if we mean master to mean something less ambitious, just meaning that you are competent with a skill set, then oh, it's totally possible for people to learn dozens or more skills. So it's a little bit like learning a language, for instance. I think to get to a level where you could be comfortable in the language, that you could have conversations in the language. That you could travel effortlessly, that you could do what you need to do effortlessly. I would say that it's quite possible not only for someone to learn five to 10 languages, but to do so where learning languages wasn't even like the main focus of their life, where you were just, you just picked them up. However, if you wanted to get to a level where you were doing, like you were totally bilingual, where you had no problems conversing at all you were you know, totally fluent, you could do a PhD dissertation in that topic, you could do all those things. Well, in that case, to get to that level probably requires living in that country that speaks it for a decade or more. So this is this sort of fine graining of when we're talking about mastery or fluency in terms of languages or really any skill is that to get to this, what I think if we're thinking about adequacy or like you're competent in the skill, that's actually fairly easy to do I think in a lot of skills that you can get to a level where oh yeah you're pretty good at this Is not that hard but I think it's also a mistake to equate that with the most elite level of skill you can reach which really does require this thing so when people are talking about you know can you master multiple skills I really want to think what are we talking about here because is it possible to become you know an elite violinist at the same time as becoming a Nobel Prize winning physicist and at the same time as becoming the write the next great American novel and stuff. Maybe not, but could you write a novel? Could you learn to play the violin? Could you understand physics well enough? Yeah, of course. So I think that's just sort of depends on what your goals are and and what we consider when we talk about mastery.
0: One of the examples that you use is how a new writer could learn copywriting as a skill, for example. So so what would be the first step somebody could take if they wanted to learn copywriting, which is a particular discipline within writing?
1: Yeah. So copywriting is a really popular one. And I think for a lot of the pragmatic writing that people tend to do, copywriting is probably an essential skill. So I don't even think of it as being super separate from writing itself. But yeah, the basic way I would probably approach copywriting is to have some... Project where you are trying to write some copy. Now, what that's going to be is going to depend on your situation. So, one of the uh, women that I interviewed for this book, Colby Durant, this was years ago that we were, we had some interaction. She was working on this project, and she was telling me that she was kind of an intern at a new firm, and I think they did web design, web consulting, and then she got into copywriting. Now, she was already in an environment where copy was being produced. So it's possible for her to slide in and write some copy for some of these things or you know, do some copy. Even if it's not assigned by her boss, just write some copy and be like, Hey, I've been working on this. What do you think? That's totally uh, available to you. For me as a business owner, I'm often writing sales pages and things like that. So for me, when I write copy, it's often for something that I'm trying to sell. And similarly, you know, for you, you might have a little side project where you want to write copy for it, you might want to use it. So I always suggest starting with where do you actually want to use this skill whenever you're learning any skill. Now, usually you're not wanting to learn copywriting in a vacuum. It's for some purpose. And so that would be the first question is what is that purpose and where do you start there? From the second point, I would say I would probably do quite a bit of reading on copywriting. So read books about copywriting. What are the skills? This is not only good for meta learning purposes to figure out okay what are the skills that I need to get good in copywriting, but give you some starting points for your actual practice. And then to do some kind of project where you're writing a lot of copy. So again, what that project exactly looks like is probably going to depend on your situation. If it were me, for instance, I would probably spend most of my time you know I have some stuff that I sell. I do have some sales pages already, so the copywriting project would probably be let's write a bunch of different copying pages, maybe even test which ones work better, you know that direct marketing approach uh If you didn't have that, if you were doing something else, then maybe it, it, the copywriting project would look a little different on your end. But I think that's sort of the way I would approach it is that there would be a large volume of practice combined with you know some books and some things to sort of ground it in theory.
0: yeah, that makes sense. that makes sense. You also have an interesting idea in the book where if you want to learn a new skill, you should go out and speak to somebody who is is better at that skill than you are. So how could I go about doing that if I wanted to... Let's think of an example. If, If I'm running my own business and now I'm spending more of my time managing the business rather than
1: just getting it off the ground. So we want to learn some more leadership skills, for example. Mm, leadership skills. Well, again, I think this expert interview method, the idea behind it is that we want to talk to someone who has the skill that we've learned and get a sense of how they acquired it and get a sense of how it impacts their goals. Because often we're, trying, we're not just trying to learn something on its own, we're learning it because we think it will help with something else right and so one of the big reasons to do an expert interview is because sometimes when you dig into the field a little bit you realize oh this thing that i thought mattered a lot maybe doesn't matter as much and so having that kind of first contact with someone who's done it before can give you a little bit of that clue in the second thing i think is that when you're doing this sort of expert interview is that it allows you to kind of chart how do people typically learn this skill and so this doesn't mean that you have to do exactly what they did. It doesn't mean that you need to, you know, when they give you advice, you need to stand up straight and follow it exactly, but rather it helps you map out what is the typical skill progression here. So if someone you identify as having good management or leadership skills. And, you know, they might come back to you and say, oh, you know, I've been running my business for a decade. And you just kind of learn it by doing it and this kind of thing. Well, you know, that doesn't give you necessarily the the answer for, okay, what should my ultra learning project be exactly? But it does tell you, okay, this person who is good at it, how did they get good at it? Well, they were working in real leadership situations. They weren't just, let's say, reading a book on leadership or something as an example. And so I think that would be the starting point for conversations. The other thing that I try to drill into with interviews is I try to look at what were aspects of either their environment when they were learning the skill or aspects of things that they did that maybe would have put them on a path to learning that skill well where others might not have. So the environmental piece is really important. So for instance, if I was talking to someone who I thought was an excellent programmer and they told me, Oh, you know, I worked on all these open source projects and that put me in contact with like the most, you know, the best programmers in this subfield and that interaction with them and that feedback really improved my code. That would be interesting, you know, as opposed to if, Oh, they learned all their programming working on solo projects. Right. Or um, I worked at this really big company and I had to, you know, have really good code because I was working with all these other people and maintaining code bases. So these are also sort of interesting little details of how do they acquire those skills so that you might start to say to yourself, hmm, how important is it that I'm working with other people to get to the level that I want? Or how important is it that I focus on learning these sort of background ideas, which, which otherwise wouldn't be there? So the expert interview method can sometimes be. It doesn't often give you the exact formulation of what project you should do, but it helps eliminate or narrow you or otherwise direct your attention towards opportunities that I think might not be there. So even for me, when I'm looking at people who are really good at writing books and I'm wanting to improve at writing, you sort of say, oh, okay, well, this person, there's a couple, there's a few obvious paths that people take to get good at writing. And so even if I'm not going to take those paths, I need to be carefully paying attention to what kinds of experiences are they having on those paths that allow them to get good at it, whether that's academia or you know, traditional journalism or, or that kind of thing. Did you use any of those approaches for writing this book? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I actually I have a recording of an interview that I did with Cal Newport, who wrote, of course, Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You, and, and more recently, Digital Minimalism. And I have an interview with him. Now, obviously, he's a good friend of mine. So this is the, like the interview is a little bit more formal than it might otherwise have needed to be. But he was someone that from the early point of writing this book, I kind of modeled. Okay. What was he doing? How did he think about writing a book? What was the process that went in there? So this book even for me was actually very explicitly modeled off of deep work as the starting point now the ending point doesn't look exactly like deep work so i don't want to you know make the idea that they're the same book but when i was you know starting how do i how on earth do i possibly take all these vague ideas and turn them into a book uh, deep work was the starting point because i really liked how he had set up that book now this book evolved in a different direction uh one of the things that cal Newport does for deep work is it's about 50-50 why and then 50% how whereas this book is more like 20% why and like 80% how and that just kind of evolved organically from realizing that you know it doesn't require much selling to convince people that being able to learn hard things quickly might be useful it's more i don't know how to do that <laughs> so so the book ended up becoming a lot more okay what's the how what are the principles what's the why whereas deep work i think maintains that ratio because it's a lot more okay, I need to be focused isn't too complicated. It's just motivating why that might be important and why you should consider that seriously. So the the shift of the book is a little different than mine. And that how was
0: summarized in nine principles yeah. So did it take you long to refine? I suppose your years of of uh, learning different skills and speaking to people into these nine principles. Well,
1: I did have an advantage for that. Like, definitely, this wasn't a book that I came to as a blank slate. I already came from the idea that like I could already write this book. Now, the interesting thing was is that this book really gave me an excuse to dig into the research. So the principles did evolve. So even though I had been thinking about these topics for like eight years prior to writing the book and doing a lot of my own projects and interviewing people actually going through and doing the research for each of the principles and and just research in general shifted the kind of sand beneath my feet a little bit. So originally, there were seven principles and some of them changed. So I think the two that got added were... I added retrieval and experimentation. No, experimentation wasn't the initial one. So what was the other one that I added? Uh... I don't remember. I'm thinking back to the proposal that I wrote about three years ago for this book, but retrieval is a good example of, of one which I had not even thought of as a principle going into it and then reading the research. Because to me, I, I always knew that like active recall and, and, you know, testing yourself was important, but I just saw that as being part of, let's say feedback where, you know, well, the reason you want to test yourself is you want to get feedback. Or I thought of it as being part of directness that you want to test yourself because where you want to use the skill is testing yourself. And it was actually going through the research and seeing, oh, no, there's actually a different kind of cognitive idea going on here behind retrieval that there are studies where you neither have directness nor feedback and retrieval still matters. And so that was sort of like an interesting discovery for me that people have actually done those studies that you know, tease these sort of ideas apart. And so there were a lot of little discoveries along the way. Feedback was another interesting one because I had kind of gone into it with a strong pro-immediate feedback position, largely from Anders Ericsson's work on deliberate practice. And then you dig into the research and it's like super complicated and like nuanced. And there's all these like discussions about, you know, I, I remember reading like huge sets of papers on how important is the timing of the feedback. And, I mean, some of these ideas did not make their way into the book because they didn't have a really super concrete suggestion. But a lot of them, even just around what feedback is useful and what role does feedback play in, in learning, I think I really updated a lot of my beliefs because I used to just sort of have a simple view okay, feedback's good, you need feedback to learn to yes, you need feedback to learn. But there's lots of ways feedback can go wrong, and there's lots of times where you can learn even absent feedback. So there was a lot of these sort of really interesting digging into that, that happened when I only when I started really doing the research for the book.
0: And that digging into, or that research that you described, Scott, did did you do that research yourself, or did you work with research assistants to help you on the book?
1: Oh um, well, we'll find out whether or not my decision to do the research all on my own was wise later on. Obviously, I did get to talk to a lot of experts, so I did call people up, which was again not as hard as you'd think it would be. <laughs> you always kind of imagine these people—they're very busy; they're not going to want to talk to you. But most of the researchers I interview are like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about my research," and even if they're, you know, otherwise very busy and so i did have calls with people but but i will say that i mean a lot of it was just doing the work of reading it so i think sometimes and i don't want to be overly you know presumptuous here about my ability to criticize other reporters or other writers but i think there's sometimes this idea that all you need to do to understand a subject is to just pull up some expert and then have an hour conversation with him and just Paraphrase what they said to you. And I think that's misleading because, in order to even understand what they're saying to you, I think you need to understand the literature. And so, for me, I have, you know, up in my, up the top of my bookshelf, I have about five or six full, like, you know, binders with hundreds of pages of journal articles and meta analyses. And I have a bunch of monographs and textbooks on my shelf here because. For me, I felt like to have that conversation with the expert, like I need them to clarify points that I don't understand, but I don't want them to try to like summarize this whole field of research in, you know, 15 minutes, because then my paraphrasing of their summary is probably not going to be that accurate. So I'm hoping that I did a good job given that I'm not a, not an expert or not a PhD researcher myself, but I really tried to work hard to Try to capture the essence of what these diverse fields of cognitive science are saying about learning, as well as trying to preserve some of the nuance, trying to avoid simplifying things too, too much when we get down to it. So like feedback was just a perfect example of there's this huge, rich set of research on like... How feedback matters, why it matters, you know, this kind of thing, the social impacts of feedback, all these kinds of interesting effects. And so, I think uh, for me, that was a big goal: was I wanted to use this book as an opportunity to really understand this subject more deeply myself. And so, I think I, I wanted to take that opportunity. And in trying to understand that research and
0: speak to the the experts that you've mentioned, how did you go about organizing your day when you were writing the book or editing it?
1: Yeah. So I kind of divided the, the format of dividing it into principles was nice because it allowed me to kind of tackle each chapter as a module itself, as opposed to, okay, I've got to just do a bunch of research on learning. And that, that's such a huge field. Even some of these subtopics like feedback, we're talking about, you know, more papers than I could read in a lifetime. But at least when you have a narrower question of what is the role of feedback on learning, then you can look at systematic reviews and meta-analyses and a few, you know, monographs or something to try to like, okay, I've read a couple books on this. I feel like I have a, a gist of what people think about this topic. So I think for me, the sort of modular nature of it meant that I tended to tackle chapters one at a time. So rather than do, you know, eight months of research and then try to condense that all into the book, it was I just worked on each principal chapter in isolation, but then I ended up rewriting a lot of them later. So I've probably rewritten everything in this book more than once. And that was just because sometimes I would write a chapter and then I would uncover new research or I would have read someone's story and I want to use them for example X. And then I feel like actually they're better suited for situation why. So some of the stories got swapped around too. So I was reading a lot of biographies. A lot of stories didn't make it into the book just because they didn't clearly illustrate anything that I was trying to talk about. So I have a lot of stories that are you know, still unused. But like example, Srinivasa uh, Ramanujan, uh, he was originally going to be in the chapter for intuition. But then I ended up using Richard Feynman for that chapter and he moved over to uh, retrieval because of his kind of, you know, sort of somewhat unusual learning strategy where he didn't have access to, you know, a lot of formal education and he had to prove proofs on his own. And this sort of like kind of unorthodox uh, background also probably contributed to some of his quirks as a mathematician. And how do you decide what skills you want to learn like going forward? Oh, I have a huge list. So I have like a million skills I want to learn, probably more than a couple lifetimes worth of things that I want to learn. For me, the decision of what project to pursue never comes from a super analytical position. It's always, does this feel like it's awesome? Does it feel like something I could get really excited about? And so that is my major priority when choosing projects is when I think about the project, do I get super excited about it? Because for me... That's a real important driving point about the projects, so it requires a lot of motivation, a lot of work, and so, if I'm kinda of like, oh yeah, I guess I'll do this at the begin, like forget about it, right? It has to be something it is going to be work and it is going to require motivation so i don't want to say that i always just do the actual projects from that place of that but the starting point has to be enthusiasm the starting point has to be excitement and and fun and so for me yeah like doing the mit challenge was because i found these courses and i was like i wonder if you could just do the final exams for degree like that was the sort of light bulb moment of if you just did the final exams like you weren't trying to You weren't trying to do all the other little academic bureaucratic hoop jumping that you normally have to do in a degree. If you just simplified it to could you pass the exams like that, kind of got the gears turning of like oh, I wonder what you'd be able to do faster, what you'd be able to change if your only goal was pass the exams. And later added the programming projects, but that kind of initial idea was like oh, that's kind of exciting. I like that idea. And then the year without English started as a trip, and then we started talking about learning languages. And then somewhere, I, after several months of talking about the trip, there was this kind of like, well, what will be the... like The MIT challenge had this very concrete, kind of easy to understand goal. And we were trying to think about what it would be for this language learning project. And I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to do Benny Lewis's Fluent in 3 Months. Not only is that his brand, but I also feel like that can backfire. Because even if you do learn a lot of the language, sometimes people are critical because they don't like your definition of fluency. And I think Benny Lewis has definitely gotten that critique sometimes. I think somewhat unfairly, but sometimes people will criticize him because he's doing a fluent in three months project. Whereas if he just did a see how much I can learn in this language in three months project, people would probably be kinder to him about, about his goals. And so I didn't want to fall into that position because I had no idea what level we would reach after each three month period of time. And so around this time, you know, I was talking to my friend about, well, I felt like this was the right way to learn it like just complete immersion and so we kind of got this idea what if the project was not centered around an outcome but around a kind of extreme method like and in this case that was the year without english and that's sort of how the project got got centered and it worked way better than I thought it would so even now I would recommend using this method even if you're not looking for some kind of gimmick for a trip you're going on you want to actually learn something well I would recommend doing something very close to that but uh, yeah, that was definitely something that just got really exciting because then it was—it wasn't just okay. We're going to learn these languages, but also, what is the experience of not speaking English basically for a year with you know a few minor yeah. exceptions? What does that feel like? And I thought that was a kind of an adventure that you know that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. So, I can imagine. I can imagine.
0: Are there any particular skills you're learning right now, or are you just focused on the language? Yeah. Of the book? So
1: I'm not doing any big ultra learning projects. This book is occupying a lot of my time, so I'm doing. A, what I would just have call normal learning. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of the principles of learning still apply. It's just I'm not pursuing things with such vigor and intensity. So there are skills that I'm currently working on that I'm already... I've been practicing for a while. So I'm always learning Chinese. That's always in the background of my life. I have a 10-minute-a-day learning Chinese habit that I've maintained for about a year now. And then I also do other Chinese I've been doing for the last 5 years. One skill that I'm working on right now is I've got this book uh, on machine learning. So, machine learning was a topic that I felt a little bit like it was understudied during my MIT challenge because the whole deep learning, machine learning revolution kind of came a little after that. Uh, Like, I did that project in 2012, 2011, and that was just when deep learning was kind of That was before it had entered full kind of hype mode where it is right now. And so the class that I was taking from that was even older. So it was an even older AI class. And while they did cover neural nets and support vector machines and some some machine learning algorithms, it was taught from a very theoretical perspective. And it was also sort of taught without reference to these You know, the fact that we have deep mind and that's, you know, it's beating, beating players that go that hadn't happened yet. Or, you know, the image recognition, self driving cars, a lot of these examples had not reached at least public prominence, even if they were being worked on in some laboratory somewhere. And so this is something that I've wanted to understand for a while. So I've been working through this, this book that's kind of doing that. So that's a little programming project I'm working on. Oil painting. I don't know, a few (laughs) others. Yeah, blockchain was one that stood out there as you were talking.
0: I just and finally, what what does your ideal early morning routine look like at the moment?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because people ask me about what my daily routine is, and it just so depends on the project that I'm working on. So right now, for instance, my life is going on podcasts like this. So I just I just look at my calendar each day. Okay, I've got you know right now I had a podcast at eight a.m., so I'm waking up at seven, having some coffee in the morning, and doing the podcast. When I'm doing a project, then again, it depends on the project. So, the MIT challenge, I was waking up, you know, six, seven, and just studying all day. And so, for me, I I tend to say my morning routine, I like to get to work right away. I find my most productive hours are like right after I wake up, about an hour after I wake up until about lunchtime. And if I don't get a lot of work done in that period of time, then a lot of work's not getting done in the day. I never I never become more productive in the afternoon if I didn't have a productive morning. So my goal is usually like, I don't usually eat breakfast or I usually eat a small breakfast if I eat breakfast. And then I usually just wait till lunch. So just have some coffee and just uh, push through it. But if you get a lot of work done in the morning, then sometimes that can... You don't even yeah. need to be productive in the afternoon. True, true. So Scott, where can people find you and your book? So my book, uh, Ultra Learning, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Uh, I know some of the listeners might be in uh, the UK or or in Europe. So I will say that there is a a teal green cover of the book that's the US edition. And there's also a yellow cover of the book that is the UK edition. I don't believe there's any difference in the content. So some people have asked me that. Which one is your book? That They're both my book. Uh, they just like to use different covers in different regions for some reason. So you can get the book on any website that you get your books from. And uh, you can find my website, which is scotthyoung.com. That's dot com. And uh, not only will you be able to find my book there... And any links to that. But there are also over 1,300 articles that I've written over the past, oh yeah, 13 years probably of writing articles online. So there is a ton and ton of ideas on habits, learning, writing, performance, all these kinds of topics.
0: I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearidertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.